0: First John chapter three I had originally planned to go from chapter three verse eleven through twenty four and uh, but we're going to stop at eighteen uh, this morning um, but not a decision that I just made now, but uh, it was a decision made earlier this week uh, so if you thought the sermon was getting cut down, sorry uh, it's not uh, it got cut down earlier this week. <laughs> So uh, I want to say as we get going, uh, uh, we have a couple dear friends here, some new friends. Uh, Gary, I won't ask him to stand up, but Gary and Nancy, I hope you get a chance to talk to them. They are uh, from Eastside Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina, um, just outside of Columbia in a town called Batesburg. And uh, I got the opportunity to preach there a few weeks ago, as you guys know. And, and uh, their pastor, as, as I've told you guys, has been such a dear friend to me. Um, we have kind of a new relationship that, uh, that God is really blessing very quickly, uh, and it's neat when, you know, when you share uh, uh, this gospel that we believe together, uh, to see God kind of mend things together very quickly, uh, as He's even done in our body, to mend us together as a body, even in just the four short years that we've been a body, that um, God has done that, and then just the f- short time. Uh, that uh, Mitch Bruner and I have known each other. That's their pastor's name. And so um, they're going to be part of a mission team that's coming up in July. Um, Probably looking at like around 20 people, I think, is what Mitch has been telling me. Um, They've been taking up collections in their church to pay for the trip, and I believe it's pretty much all paid for. Um, And they're also uh, wanting to partner with us and just in strengthening us as a body uh, and, you know, Lord willing, maybe some future church planting, and so God is just doing something really neat there, uh, that two bodies 10 hours apart can share in the same gospel, and uh, I just, um, I want you guys to know there's, there's another body out there that is looking at renovation saying, we love you, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting, for you guys to get a chance to spend time with them in July. I think it'll be a, a sweet encouragement to both people, but particularly to us. I think it will be a wonderful encouragement to us. So, with that said, 1 John, because that fits right in with um, what we're going to talk about today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, let's pray for your word to impact our hearts in a way that nothing else can. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you be glorified in these next few minutes. In, it's in your Son's name, amen. So what we've established so far in 1 John is kind of the building theme, is that those who know God are characterized by righteousness and freedom from sin. Characterized by righteousness and freedom from sin. So we talk about the sweetness of freedom that we just sang about that is something that should characterize those who genuinely know God. Now John is going to dig further into the fact now that knowing God means loving one another. So remember we talked about knowing God is belief in the incarnation, so having right doctrine and then obedience, you know, following God's commands and he's now going to take a very specific part of that obedience and drive more thoroughly into, more deeper into the idea of loving one another. And what's interesting is that even with knowing, even with John knowing that this is a characteristic of those who've been redeemed, he still takes the time to encourage them in it. Why? The implication is that even though loving one another is a characteristic of those who follow Jesus, they will clearly still struggle with it. In John's eyes, this is one of the first things to go when we stop depending on Christ's righteousness and we begin to depend on ours and we begin to get selfish and, and lack perseverance. This is one of the first things that go, is love for the brothers. That's why we get into Hebrews, and he says, don't forget, don't neglect gathering together. There's clearly an importance of the body in Scripture um, that, that we cannot miss. We cannot miss now. Well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let's let's move on. The church. Let's talk just a moment about the church culture that we live in, kind of in a in a broad sense. I'm going to make some generalizations here. I understand that, but the church. I would say if it doesn't take you long to look around and see the church is oftentimes characterized by isolationism, individualism, selfishness. Like this is kind of the church culture in which we live in. There's there's not a sense of community. There's a sense of we just kind of show up, do this thing, and leave and go home. Um, and then we wonder why, and like the selfishness, but then we wonder why, like, we wonder why the church is lacking in mission. Like, why is the church lacking? I'm talking church in general. But why is the church lacking in leading people to Jesus? Well, because they don't even love one another, let alone love someone that's lost. They don't selflessly live with one another, let alone give their life to see someone else redeemed. I mean, which is clearly right, like anti-gospel, right? That we would live selfishly, that we wouldn't love each other, let alone love each other, so that we might love those outside the body. Um, And then we also wonder why no one wants to be a part of the body. Why would they want to be a part of that selfish, self-righteous, hypocritical group of people? Why would they want to be a part of that? They don't, and that's, that's why the church is largely in the state that it's in today. is They don't understand the gospel that they so-called proclaim. And then they wonder why people don't want to meet this Jesus. Well, it's because their Jesus is, many times, the Jesus of the Pharisees, not the Jesus of the Bible. And the world doesn't want the Jesus of the Pharisees. Uh, they've already got that, right? What they don't have is the Jesus of the Bible. And so... You know, when we think of church and, like, how do we reach a culture, there's one thing that we can have that nothing else in the world can have. No company, no CEO, no marketing program can, can give or provide the love for each other that comes about only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something that we can offer that nothing else in this world can offer. And so when we don't offer that, we should expect nothing less than the world to turn their back and run. You know, the church, I think, has been content with too long with saying, I, I will die for you, but in between now and the time that my life is called upon, I'm going to live my self-absorbed little life. I'm going to live for me yeah, sure, I'll die for you if that bullet ever gets flung your way. But between now and then, it's about me. Um, we're content with that. Let me just think of a couple practical places. Maybe parents who live without teaching their kids sacrifice for the body ultimately end up raising kids who are self-absorbed. And then we wonder why they don't have a sacrificial love for God. It's because of the opportunity of growing their entire lives, of being able to give themselves for God's bride and sacrificing their life for God's bride, when it gets out to where they now start making their own choices, they weren't taught how to sacrifice and live for God because they missed the opportunity for the 20 years that they lived under your house. I mean, So parents, parents of young kids, we have to think. Right now, God has given you a tangible opportunity to teach your kids sacrifice for God through His bride. But if all we do is teach them that it's all about us, it's all about our little nuclear family, then it's easy for them to to grow up and not sacrifice for God, not live for God. How about employees? I think we need to consider when we go to our jobs, we need to consider what we are saying to our co-workers when we're willing to sacrifice our church for our paycheck. What are we telling them there about our love for the body? We're telling them that I care more about this over here than than I do about the body. And then we wonder why they don't want the gospel that we proclaim. How about spouses? What does it say to your spouse when you're willing to sacrifice the church for them? Well, I'm willing to say forget the church, it's all about you. Now, I mean, I say that coming from as a pastor, who many pastors struggle with the church as kind of like their mistress. And that's a grave sin. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about saying, showing our spouse, you know, like not intentionally, but showing them that the world kind of revolves around them. That's not good either. You know, I would I would propose to you that as you learn to love and sacrifice for the body, you should be learning to love and sacrifice better for your to your wife or to your spouse. As you learn to love and sacrifice for your spouse, you learn to love and sacrifice better in the body. It's a win-win. Now, if you're just doing one and not the other, now, now we're getting into right, a, a problem. But I just want us to begin thinking, what are we saying to the world that's not, that, what are we saying that's different than this love for the body that John is talking to us about in this text? So, with that said, we, we talk about, oftentimes, about our identity as a, as a family, and I know we talk about this a lot. It seems like this is a, a very common topic around here, and I hope you don't feel uh, like it's a broken record. Uh, there's so much more for us to know when it comes to being a family, so much more for us to grow in. Be, and yet we find ourselves, again, right here in the text, and this is what he's talking about. He's talking about a love within the family of God. Now we see that Jesus clearly, you know, as we saw in Luke, He lived as a perfect family member within those who were around Him and God had called to follow Him. And our being is a family. That's something that we find in our identity in Christ. Therefore, our doing should reflect our being. Not our doing reflects something else, but our doing should reflect who we are in Jesus Christ. So I think part of the question or the kind of the main question for us today to answer is what does it mean to live as a family? As John would help us understand here in chapter three. Again, I know we talk a lot about this, but here we are in the text again. And I think so we asked the question, well why are we talking about community so much and 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 the fact that I mean we're just we're just preaching through text, right? And and through the, through books of the Bible and and community keeps coming back up and back up and back up. And I think we have to ask this question, well, why? I think it's because the community, the role of the church plays such a huge role in our lives. Now, what did we talk about last week in 1 John? We talked about perseverance. Like, what's it mean to make it through to the end and persevering in our faith? Isn't it interesting that immediately after John talks about persevering in our faith, that he now talks about living in the community of God? I think it's because, at least in part, that, uh, wow, woo, that perseverance, someone's like, uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so back in here, I, I get distracted more than you all do, I think. So, uh, anyways, perseverance, I think part of the reason why, community and living in the body is so important to perseverance is because perseverance was never meant to be a solo project. Um, there's a great sermon Brian was telling me about by John Piper. I haven't listened to it. He talks about uh, like perseverance as a community project. Uh, and this is very clearly seen in scripture that persevering in our faith is a community project. You weren't meant to do that on your own. Your struggles are not meant to be kept to yourself. Your sins are not meant to be handled on your own so i have a question what part of life or what parts of life are concerned when it comes to persevering in the faith what parts of life might be a trick question let me ask you this what parts of life are concerned when it comes to worshiping god everything right so then everything's a part of our perseverance everything therefore it's concerned when it comes to perseverance so if perseverance then as a community project and perseverance involves every aspect of my life, then the community should be involved in every aspect of our lives. Now, obviously, there's varying degrees of that. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, something that's intimate and personal, like, say, a, a sex life, uh, may not be something you broadcast to your house gathering, okay? Just for the record, none of that going on this week, uh, <laughs> At the same time, maybe you're struggling in that area, you can go to the community for help. I just advise you to go to appropriate people, and again, not to make your spouse feel awkward around everybody. But the body can be involved in that. It just might be a more limited portion of the body. Um, but how, you, what, is, what is our sex lives? It's something that should honor God. It's something that will impact your perseverance. Right? I mean, marriages are destroyed. Churches are destroyed from affairs. Now, that's not just simply based upon our sex and intimacy. There's other factors a part of it, but that's a part of it. It's such, a, it's such a huge temptation and a trap, and God meant it for His glory. So again, yeah, every aspect of our lives... To varying degrees, depending on the issue and depending on who and, and all that. But, but the body is there to help us persevere. So, as we begin to work through this text, we're going to see that Christ's self-sacrificing leads us ultimately to a practical love that goes beyond feelings to a very costly sharing of ourselves we will see this self-sacrificing display by Jesus that we as a church, I think, are content to say, oh, you know, I feel, that's terrible what they're going through right now. I'll pray for them, right? Huh. I'll pray for them. Um, I mean, Yes, your prayer is good. I'm sure that is godly, but don't let prayer be an excuse for inaction, Right? Because he says here that there's a word and a deed, like a deed that is an action that is required of us. So let's keep that in mind as we work. We will see a contrast in the text of what hatred looks like and then ultimately what love looks like in the body. So the first thing I think we see, and I guess to not start out on a, on a light note here, to not love your church family is to hate your church family. It's one of the reasons I love, I'm loving preaching First John. As you know, I see things typically very black and white. Uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Uh, John sees things very black and white, and John proclaims things in very extreme measures. But I think that's helpful for us who want to live in the gray so as not to have to actually do anything. We can kind of stay in a, an ignorant gray spot. And, and John's saying, no, 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 the contrast is huge. I think many of us would be happy. It's kind of like we'd be happy with a a, a grayscale TV, you know, a black and white TV. And the reality is, is there's so much more vibrance and so much more clarity to be given to the picture of the way that we should be living. We should not be content with this over here, where it's it's mediocre and we don't really see the clarity. We should be only content to see the clarity that John brings to the way that we should live. So let's go to John chapter three, first John chapter three, verse eleven. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11, it's begin right there, it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Let's make a few comments about this. This is no new message. They have heard it from the beginning, John is telling you. You've heard this from the beginning. Likewise, this is no new message for us, particularly if you've been in the church. Church talks about loving one another all the time, right? I mean, for all of you who grew up in church, it's we're supposed to love one another. I, I mean, I heard that all of my life growing up as well. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, there is still a sense in our culture that we're supposed to love each other, right? At least in America, uh, we're supposed to love each other, and you know, and so on and so forth. Even though that might be, uh, they might have no basis for that uh, apart from the gospel. But we, in the gospel, understand we we have a basis for this loving one another. So John here is concerned want to remind us again of being and doing. And so clearly in the context, right, we've talked about this not belief in the incarnation, and we talked about of this past week about the idea of separating being righteous from doing righteous and living out righteousness. How, how those who were receiving this letter, the false teachers in Ephesus, were saying this is we can maintain a state of righteousness without actually living out righteousness. So in that context... One of the things, the top things that come to John's mind that is at danger inside of that context is the idea that you would begin to hate your brother. So as you begin to separate righteous living from righteous being, his concern is that you would hate each other, that you would lose love for one another. I think John is implying that the way we, John is implying that if the way we live doesn't matter, then immediately selfish living will be embraced. If we're not concerned about righteous living, we'll begin to embrace selfishness. It's interesting to think about, I think, selfishness of our culture. Then think about the selfishness of the church culture at large, and even the tendency towards selfishness even in our body. We're not over this either. We'll never be over this. Now, as a point of clarification, understand that when John says love one another, what he means is love for one's brother, and what he doesn't mean is one, love for one's brother as in like your biological brother, he means love for the brother. Now, down in the south, you call each other brother Matt and, and uh, sister Nancy or so and so. Up here in the north, we don't do that as much unless you're in a little more of a, countryfied church or a little more of a southern church. Uh, I know I was in a church that was kind of a transplant from the south for a while, and I was Brother Matt. And uh, So y'all, if you want to, you can start calling me Brother Matt. And, and, uh, but that's what he means. There's a sense of that. Now what's dangerous is when we're, we're all part of a church that we don't really love each other, but we still call each other brothers. Now, now we're just living like Pharisees, and it's legalism. Uh, so it's not the act of calling someone a brother that makes us living out what John's saying. There's actions and words and deeds that have to follow that more than just a title. But there's certainly something to that. That he's, John's talking here about this idea of brother. And, and remember, his context here is the local church. He's writing to the church in Ephesus saying these brothers, and remember early on he talks about those who were never a part of us. They were not our brothers, We're brothers, we are sisters, and we should have this love for each other. Let me remind you of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. He says this, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, these are talking about brothers. These are guys who are followers of Jesus that are, that are going to be the first ones the, the ones to start Christ's church. And he says you'll be known by your love for one another. So let's move forward in this text. Envy of brothers' righteousness of a brother's righteousness leads to hatred and John says ultimately murder. Again, there's no sense in making light what John is saying. There's no sense in watering down what John is saying. Envy of brothers' righteousness leads to hatred and ultimately murder. Let's go to 1 John 3, verse 12. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Let's talk through this. Again, John is good at giving extremes. I think he shows us great darkness, the darkness seen in Cain. I'd encourage you this week to go back and read Genesis chapter 4 and see the darkness that John is talking about there. I think he shows us this darkness so that we can see the great light that we have in the gospel. If we would live in the gospel and be redeemed by the gospel We ask this question, how do I know if I know God? That's been the question we've been asking from the very beginning. How do I know that I have the real thing? Well, right here, one part of that, we would know that we know God if we do not live like Cain. This story shows what failure to love one's brother can lead to. Murder. John is saying that all hatred is murder... In its embryonic stage, hatred is just simply murder as an embryo. It is murder. It just hasn't come to its full light or its full fruition yet. It's still just, just in seed form. It's kind of like lust. When Jesus talks about lust, you've, if you've lusted in your heart, you've had an affair. It, it's, it's an affair in seed form. That's taken root in your heart. It has to be dealt with, or else it will eventually lead to an affair. But it's still the same. It, it, it's, in, it's in an embryonic stage. Now, I want to point out to us, I think we have a clear picture at this point in the text of, of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation or restoration. So that kind of the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, I guess I'm doing it backwards for you all. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In creation, we see man was created to do nothing but enjoy God, right? And exercise dominion on God's behalf. But then the fall happens. Because man, we talked about this in the Gospel and Kingdom series. What happened? What was man's desire? It was to, for God to no longer have righteous rule over man, but for man... To have righteous legislative rulership, where he was the one determining right from wrong, not God. And then in keeping with the fall, this desire for God's righteous, right God's righteous rulership, in keeping with the fall, it doesn't take long for murder, that seed of hatred for God, to come to fruition in his son Cain. And in Cain's life, it very quickly turns into murder. So we ask the question, of this, he, John asks the question, why do people commit murder? Look back at the passage. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain's actions were evil while Abel's actions were righteous. I think if you go back and read Genesis 4, we don't have time to today, But really shine some light on this. But John saw Cain, John the Apostle here, saw Cain's motive for murder as being envy of his brother. There was an enviousness towards his brother Abel that led him to murder. Cain saw that Abel's righteous acts found God's approval and he was angry that this was so. So God had, I mean, the ESV says God had regard Abel, but for Cain he had none. So there was this favor of God looking upon Abel and and that righteousness there that that then uh, Cain becomes envious of. I think Cain was, in part at least, envious of God's blessing. Cain wanted joy and approval that his brother Abel was getting. And this ultimately leads to the hatred of his brother, and then ultimately his murder. Before the end of chapter 4, they're out in the field, and Cain murders his brother. And then God comes and says, what have you done to your brother? His blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, I think the reality for us is that the grave danger for us lies in the realm of envying our brother's righteousness. Now, in trying to make sense of this for us, I think what we want oftentimes more than anything else is esteem, pride, joy even, blessing that comes from righteousness. So we look at our brother's righteousness, I think oftentimes we'll see favor of God there and and envy, I don't think it takes long for envy to set in I mean consider Cain. God had looked upon his brother with favor. We envy this righteousness and then we live in sin, as we live in sin, and then we begins this hatred, and then hatred leads to murder. And I think we have to it's dangerous for us to think, well, I would never murder my brother, like in a literal sense. And maybe that's true. But the issue is not, will you legalistically never slay your brother? That's not John's point. Because I think he knows the reality that that's probably not going to happen. You're probably not literally going to kill your brother. But the danger is, how are you killing them? I think more, I don't want to make light of the situation, but how are you killing them relationally? How are you killing them uh, as you're living out this faith with God? Is this so maybe it's not a, you're literally killing them, but how? But how? Is, does that make sense? So, I want to give us John gives us kind of a, a correlating thought here real quick, and so this is kind of like a parenthesis to this idea. Verse John, uh, John chapter three verse thirteen. He says, "Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you." Just very quickly, because again, this is kind of a. Parenthetical point here. He says, The point is, do not be surprised. For the same reason as with Cain and Abel, the world's actions are evil and those of believers are righteous. Hatred. I also want to point out to you that I think this hatred, John's not limiting this to hatred from the world from outside of the walls of the body or walls of the church. I think there can clearly be a hatred from the world that comes from within. The body. I think that's part of his point here is this hatred that's going to go on with the body because he's saying that this hatred that can take root and result in murder um, is indicative of whether or not you are genuinely a part of the body. So I think John's warning that this hatred from the world certainly is not limited to those outside of the body, but it beca- could be from those inside the body as an in- indication that they're not truly redeemed that this hatred would come from them and stir and eventually turn into murder. I mean, I've experienced this same thing inside the church. Hatred from the world but comes from within inside the church. You know, it's interesting. Just just a quick note, you know, as people begin down the path of unrighteousness, what typically happens is they begin to attack those who are righteous around them. Now, usually they do this motivated I think by justification. So if I can destroy the righteousness of that person over there, then I can somehow be justified in what I want to do. If I can discredit them by destroying their righteousness, then it makes me feel better about my unrighteousness. And Maybe some of you have even experienced this from outside the body, but from within your family. An attack, the world hates you because of your righteousness. Now understand, I mean, they may hate you because you're a jerk, um, but hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully they hate you because of your righteousness in Christ. Um, he says, to not be surprised to expect it, even to plan on it, to be prepared for it. And again, I think we as a body understand this is not a legalistic righteousness, right? This is a righteousness, and we're going to define this with a little more clarity as, as we go along. But the point is, don't be surprised. Remember, guys, that darkness cannot stand the light. And that darkness is always oppressive to the light. Always try to darken it. So what happens, here, so kind of back to the text, away from this parenthetical reference here. So what happens is we begin to envy another brother's righteousness, and then that hatred begins to build in our hearts. I think oftentimes that looks like that hatred is built because I want to now justify what I'm doing. So I have to, in order to justify what I'm doing, because it's so different than the righteousness of my brother, that the only way for me to justify and feel right about my righteousness, and typically that righteousness is a part, I mean that's, it is going to be apart from the gospel and righteousness in Jesus, the only way for me to, find, to justify that righteousness is to, is to downgrade the righteousness of my brother. To begin to hate him and his righteousness. That, again, makes me feel justified in my righteousness. But John tells us that loving your brother instead brings assurance to your faith. He says just, just the opposite is required. It's not, I want to feel good about my faith, so I'm going to tear down and be envious of the righteousness of my brother instead it's loving that brother that should bring assurance to my righteousness. First John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love, for all you ladies, the sisters, right? And as a brother, we love the sisters. And as a sister, we love the brothers. I mean, John clearly, as you know, is not being gender specific here. He said, but whoever does not love abides in death he's saying that this hatred or even the lack of love for the brother because the lack of love leads to the hatred which leads to the murder this lack of love is the that he says that life does not abide in him but instead death abides in him that's interesting i think it's an interesting play on words because he's saying death like Spiritual death in him abides in him, and that leads to the death of a brother. And he even says, here he gives an example of a physical death, a murder even. If you know in John's vocabulary, love, light, and life belong together. Love, light, and life belong together. And then hatred, darkness, and death belong together. Love, light, life. Secondly, hatred, darkness, and death belong together. He says the proof that a person possesses eternal life is that he shows love for his brothers. Now this is not, again, not talking about a love for the world. I mean, we have other passages that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and we should do likewise. I mean, that's not what the passage says, but we should imitate that. So there is a love for the world that we should have, but there's a unique love that we should have for the brothers, that the Bible spends much more time talking about. This just talking about a love in particular for the church family. I want to note that spiritual life, note this, spiritual life does not come from loving our brothers. Spiritual life does not come from loving our brothers, but love for our brothers is evidence of new life. Right? Let's not get those backwards. So legalism would say, that spiritual life comes from me loving my brothers. We're saying the gospel says that loving my brothers comes from spiritual life. God has opened my heart to love my brothers by His grace. But the converse is true as well. Whoever does not show the evidence of loving his brothers is still in the realm of darkness and death. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brothers is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's saying that, this, that no murderer has, and someone who has hatred for his brother, that, that the seed of God, that the word of God, that Jesus Christ does not abide in him. Hatred, now let's talk about hatred. Hatred is the wish that the other person was not there. You understand that? I mean, like, we like to make light of our anger towards brothers or maybe our bitterness towards brothers and sisters. The hatred is a wish that the person was not there, the longing ultimately that he might be dead. Now I hope that no one had, you know, literal thoughts of I hope so-and-so in our church is dead next week. That would be bad. But do we understand the danger that disdain, disgust even, or bitterness towards a brother in the body could lead to that? Do we see that? What do you think church splits happen And people get mad and leave the church. And why? It's because one day they thought, you know, I really don't like it when that person does that. And then that turned into bitterness, which took root, which then turned into hatred, which was really what bitterness is. Hatred, and then that hatred turned into a murder of that relationship, saying, I don't want this anymore. I'm out of here. And it all started one day when they thought, I don't really like it when that person does that. And instead of practicing Matthew 18 and going to that person and saying, you've offended me or, hey, can we work through this? They just soaked in their bitterness and eventually murder set in. So the warning for us is recognize the seed is there. And we don't have to go looking for this seed. Our critical, selfish eyes will find these seeds. And it's whether or not we're going to water them or we're going to dig them out. So he says, whoever hates brother is a murderer, and those, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now we may not like the strength, again, of these words, but it's good for us to unambiguously display the character of hatred. We just paint the picture clearly, without ambiguity, This is what hatred is. If I hate somebody, I'm no different than the murderer in my attitude toward him. Hatred, guys, is incompatible with spiritual life. He says that the word of God cannot abide in him, or eternal life does not abide in him. The person who hates another, ultimately what he wants to do is deprive him of life. Such a person clearly does not belong to the realm of life. Does that make sense? If I hate him, I want to murder, I want to take life away. Well, how can someone who belongs to life want to take life away? It doesn't work that way. They don't fit together. They're mutually exclusive. So he's saying if you're a follower of Jesus and you have a hatred in your heart, you're not living as one that has the light in him. You're living as one who has darkness in him. So as we move forward in this text, we want us to see... Now we're going to take a look at what does sacrificial love look like. Because I think many of us can walk away from the text so far and go, okay, like I'm not planning on murdering anybody next week, so I should be good to go, right? All right, here's the beautiful thing. He gives us a picture of what it should look like. What does sacrificial love look like? So God's definition of love was displayed in the sacrifice of His Son. God's definition of love was displayed in the sacrifice of His Son. So here we go. It's not good enough for us just to simply shy away from wanting to murder someone. Or simply from not having hatred from someone. Or from simply just, like, John is going to require more of us. The gospel requires more of us than just simply, when I have a bad thought, I either need to practice Matthew 18 or I just need to deal with it and move on. No, he's saying there's more So these actions not to do, now what are these actions we are to do? And that's what we see demonstrated here in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we saw that creation was set forth, and man was given all that he needed to live eternally under the righteous rule of God. Then man fell, sin entered the world, and shortly after man, because of his envy for another man's righteousness, Cain, just like his father, commits murder. Now you see that? My parents, just for a second. You see this? Adam, envious of God's righteous rulership, murders his relationship with God. There's spiritual death that takes place upon Adam's acts, unrighteous acts towards God. Cain simply follows his father and murders his brother because he's envy of Abel's righteousness before God. Now look at 3.16. 3.16. It says, by this we know love, <clears throat> that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now John turns to the positive nature of love. Positive and, and encouraging, K love, here we go. What does he mean by love? What does he mean by love? How is John defining love? Love, all right? We have to, it's not, we can't just go, okay, I've got this conception of love and that's what I'm supposed to do. No, John defines love for us. He defines love for us by giving us an example. It's not light and fluffy music or giving little good thoughts and writing cards to each other. It's Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the definition of the love that we are to have for each other, is that we would lay down our lives. course the idea of love here is the readiness to do anything for other people the readiness to do anything for other people the idea of law or love is expressed with perfect clarity in the saying that love is seen when a man lays down his life on behalf of his friends look at john 15 verse 13 the world did not come up with that idea right the army the military did not come up with this idea That it is good for me to lay down my life for my brother. God came up with this idea. Now, as John is saying this, I mean, understand that these people would have had in mind the idea of the good shepherd from John 10. I would encourage you this week, go read John 10. The shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. But just think about this for a second. How dumb would it be for a shepherd to lay down his life for a sheep? Well, that does make any sense. It's just a dumb animal. I think that's where the beauty, and the glory of God comes bursting through the limit of that metaphor, is that you have a shepherd laying down his life for his dumb sheep. Right? The glorious shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. So this this, if you put in quotations, to lay down one's life, I think this is very significant. The call here is much more than just simply not envying your brothers. The call here is that we would give up one's that one would give up his own life in order that others may live. That's what we're called to. Love means saying no to one's own life so that somebody else may live. I mean, how's that for the abortion debate? No, I'm going to take their life so that I can live. But Jesus says, no, you give up your life so that someone else could live. I think this would be a guiding thought, I don't want to step on any toes here, but a guiding thought on is it the mother's life or the baby's life in the abortion? How does abortion fit into that? That mommy would die or the baby would die, so now that's justification for the baby to die? What would the gospel tell us? The gospel tells me that I would lay down my life so that someone else could live. That wasn't planned, that was free. Love also means laying down your own life for the benefit of the other person. Not just so that they may live, but for their benefit, for their good. John's point in speaking of Jesus' death is that in the death of Jesus, we see the essence of self-giving. We see the perfection of what it means to love. And this perfection of what it means to love is the self-giving of the Son of God. That he gives himself. I mean, think about it. How dumb is it for the God of the universe to die for us? Now, obviously, I say dumb, kind of t- tongue in cheek, right? But think about that. Just this—what makes it so astounding? What, w- what in God's character would have to overcome that illogic? It had to be His mercy and his grace, and his love for us. I mean, he could just create new people that weren't so stubborn and stupid. Right? But it's in this marvelous act that he displays his glory. So now John says that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus' example is a, clearly a model to follow. Now think about this. What is the most precious thing to any one of us? What is the most precious thing to you? Now I want you to think about this, because some of us are going to be potentially pious and go, oh, it's, it's my family, that's, that's who. But let's think about this for a second. I want to argue that it's, it's your life. That's the most precious thing that each one of us has. It's my life. What good am I to my, am I to my family that I supposedly care so much about if I die? So It's kind of like saying I need to drive safely when my kids are in the car, but when I'm not, then I can just drive however I want to. Well, that's not selfless driving, that's selfish driving. Because what good am I to my kids other than maybe a, a life insurance check, once I die? What good am I? So I think the most precious thing that each one of us has is our own lives. And I don't think that it's, I mean, as long as you're not doing that selfishly, but the most precious thing I have is my life the greatest sin that you could commit against me is to rob me of my life. Now on the flip side of that, the greatest thing that you could give me is laying down your life. Jesus lays down his life for us. We see the ultimate contrast, right? We see Cain's hatred issued in murder versus Christ's love in self-giving sacrifice. Now, what does this mean for us? Now, it could be laying down our lives in times of persecution, and certainly that could come in our lifetime in this country. Chances are pretty slim, at least as far as from a, like a, having to lose our life, but that could happen, certainly. Things are headed in that direction, but John is saying that love must be prepared to meet the needs of others whatever the cost and sacrifice. So there's a, there's a sense of now. Not just if the bullet is flung, am I going to dive in front of it or not? But a matter of what am I going to do now with this self-giving sacrificial love? So let's reflect on this for just a few moments. And, but Christian, let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, where can you find hatred in your heart towards a brother or sister in the body? Just think about that for a second. It's a good question to ask. Have I had hatred in my heart this past week for someone in this body? And then I think it's, it, I think it's appropriate to even think beyond this body, a brother from another body. It's kind of like a brother from another mother. Where have I had hatred? <laughs> How about this? Wherever the past week did you live either... Simply for yourself, or did you lead your family to live selflessly when it came to the body? Let's think about that. Wherever this past week, did I live s- for myself to the neglect of the body, and or lead my family to live selflessly when it came, or to live selfishly when it comes to the body? Now understand. I don't see John giving us an order of priorities in this text. I don't see him saying here, family, f- biological family first, church family second. Now I think certainly we have a primary, like I have a primary responsibility to care for my family. But I think oftentimes we are so tempted to take that to the extreme where we go, it's my family, and then if I have time, it's outside of that. And what do we do? We teach our kids, our family, selfishness, self-centeredness. You know, it's all about me, and the world should revolve around us. We've got to be careful at the same time, we can't just say, well, forget my biological family and I'm going to go love on the church either. That's, that's not, so I just want to make sure we're careful that we just don't, we don't have these imaginary priorities and the, and the gap, I would say it this way, you know, my conviction is this, it is, it is my biological family, the one that God's given me to lead and then I lead the church family after that but the difference is, is, many people would say the gap between those two is like this and I don't think the gap between those two is like that. If anything, they're like this and maybe even potentially intertwined, and I would say that would be, that's where my heart leans more, is the intertwining of my biological family with the church family. That the church family wants me to care for my family and helps me care for my family, and it's not me, I care for my family, and then I have time if I, I can help care for other families. It's an intermingling of the two, where there should be no confusion of am I having to choose one over the other. its We're choosing both, together, underneath the gospel. So... Let's think about this. I'm going to ask some more probing questions. Uh, did you know of a need in the body over this past week but failed to meet it? Did you know of a need but failed to meet it? Another question. Did you fail to seek out the lives of others so as to know their needs? Because I think that's where we've got to go beyond. Self-sacrificing, self-giving is going beyond just do I know what needs are out there so I can meet them but, but pursuing those needs. Jesus Pursued our needs. Next question Where or were you too absorbed with your kingdom, maybe your kids, your house, your car, your job, your eating, etc., that you neglected the family of God? I think that's a legitimate question for us to ask. Wherever this past week were we so absorbed with our kingdom, I would remind you that it's a very little kingdom. Maybe at your house gathering. Again, just very practical questions. At your house gathering, did you think to help clean up after Bible study? Did you consider giving a hand and helping to clean and prepare before Bible study? Anybody ever thought about that? I'm not just saying this because I have a house gathering. but These are things for us to all think through, right? We can do this. We can love and smile about, you know, are are we sinning in this area? Yes, I need to repent of that, thank God for His graciousness, and we can move on, right? I, I, I feel like we can do that as a body. How about on Sundays? Do you consider who sets up every week? Do you consider, I mean, I, mean I, don't, I know they've never asked me to do this, but do you consider the sacrifice of people like maybe the band? I mean, many of those practice on Thursdays, give up time practicing at home, they come, and on top of all that, they come to set up and stay for teardown. That's a, that's a lot, a lot so you consider whether or not there's enough help on sundays after service again it's not saying that we would never like need to leave to go take care of something else after service but is it crossing our mind of is the body being taken care of before i go take care of my kingdom because both need to happen but is that crossing our mind? Are we thinking that way? Is there someone I need to talk to? Is there someone who might need my help? Now here's the contrast. Not If you're not a follower of Jesus or you don't know I, I bet you didn't think much about these things this past week. I mean, but this is expected. I wonder, though, if you know the self-sacrificial love of the Father. I wonder if you've considered that this life is so much more than our selfish investments. But God's investments in this world through His Son, Jesus. So, last couple closing thoughts. The moment of sacrifice is now. It's now. It's not once the bullet gets flung and the trigger's been pulled The moment for self giving sacrifice is now. First John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now it's interesting, John really makes the rubber hit the road at this point. True love is not only revealed in the ultimate sacrifice of laying down your life, but it's expressed in much lesser actions. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather give food to you or much rather help you with a need than have to give up my life. I mean, I'm not lying, right? I mean, I think all of us would agree. I'd much rather give you, you know, care for you in that way than have to die. I mean, so let's let's get our, like, sometimes we think illogically. Maybe God, to teach you self-sacrifice, is going to require your life because you haven't learned your lesson in the meantime. Let that be a motivator, right? Uh, yes, here's my money. You know, don't take my life, Jesus. Guys, many of us, I, I'm sure, even in this in this body, with our, um, I think many of us would give up our lives for each other if it really came down to it. But I think this is a lofty ideal to assent to. It's a probability of happening that's probably pretty slim. Now, notice the transition back in the verse. He goes to seize his brother in need. You notice the difference? What, he's been talking in plural terms all along. Seize his brothers, brothers, brothers. Now he switches to brother. Here's what John Stott, if you knew who John Stott is, Is what he says. He says, It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And I think that's the risk, right? We can say, well, we love everybody in the body of of renovation, but could you go down the list and say how you love that person in particular and Noticing needs and sacrificing for that particular person and their particular needs. Can you do that? That's a, That's a totally different task to begin. The reality is, it's easier for us to assent to the commitment, while in the meantime, we are content to live our present comfortable life until the sacrifice is required. Here's the implication you have to see your brother's need. I mean, all this is based upon the fact that you're going to pursue your brother's needs. They're not always going to be broadcasted. John Stott said again, he said, You must see your brother's need, not merely cast a passing glance, but see long enough to appreciate and understand the circumstances of the case. You want to know one of the ways that you've probably practically shown hatred to your brother or sister? It's that you stand far enough of a distance away so as not to see the need in their life. Too busy chasing your kingdom and avoiding the impending ruin of your brother's kingdom. You need to sit at lunch, you need to sit at dinner, you need to sit down for coffee, you need to sit down and look into their life long enough and hard enough to see the train that's coming their way or to see the need that is crushing their life or to speak truth into their situation. You have to sit long enough, talk long enough, think, pray long enough. Don't just give it a passing glance. Life life is much easier that way. I'm not going to lie. It's much harder. Before we ever planted Renovation Church, I was talking to a guy. I was talking about, like, community and, and what that looks like in a church. And he said, look, I'll tell you this. It's much easier to do church without having that kind of community. And it is. <laughs> it's hard. But He says the moment is now. If you see a brother in want and you show no pity to him, then the love of God cannot be possibly in you, cannot possibly be in you. Now, again, I want to remind us this is more than just a monetary need. Maybe the need is for him to have time without kids so that he can invest into his marriage or invest into her marriage. Maybe, and that's not monetarily centric or uh, focused. Christian love is a love that gives to those in need. I just want to make sure it's in our minds that John is not talking about or necessarily even primarily about opening your bank account to someone. Although certainly that will be a large part of it. Now John says, talks about this idea of closing his heart towards his brother. So I think this is more than just action, but it is a feeling pity, like a I feel the burden of their need in my life. See, so this is where I, again I'm telling you, like we talk about community a lot as a church, and I hope you you sense like, wow, we do have more room to grow. We do have more things to learn, a better way to live and more sacrifice to be done and so on and so forth. The last big thought is this, sacrifice in deed and in truth. So not only is the moment now, but the call is to sacrifice in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 18. Those little children. I love love how John addresses them as youngsters in the faith. He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John finishes up by saying to us, don't merely say kind things. You get that? John's saying, don't just merely say, hey, how are you doing? Okay, cool. I mean, seriously, I mean, who really answers that honestly on Sunday morning? Hey, how are you doing this morning? Oh, dude, it was terrible. Like, horrid week, you know, and you're like, oh, Lord, why did I ask? You know, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, I want you to be honest with me. So I just say, hey, good morning. And then I'll ask you later, right? (laughs) Guys, our love is to be demonstrated in truth. And the call is to live out a love that is in accord with the love shown by Jesus. Guys, think through everything you do. Is everything I do and everything we do, is this showing self-sacrifice for the family of God? For each other. Here's a good test question that we've been asking as elders a lot. Do the people around me in the body feel cared for by me? Do they feel cared for? Or do they feel like I just kind of give them a, a, a passing glance? Or do I make a joke about everything? Or do they walk away genuinely feeling cared for by the words that come from my mouth? By the attention I give them with my eyes. By the sacrifice that I'm willing to do on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. Do they feel cared for by me? Remember, John is saying that doing comes out of being. So if you understand the care of the Father that He's had for you, then you won't be able to help but live that out. And this has to go beyond just those whom we like to show care to. Like our family, our biological family. Certainly we should like to do that. But this goes for people who are not like us. That don't share the bloodline of us. Right? But those who share the bloodline of Jesus. That we walk in His blood. Do we show them this care? And I'd say another slight, like kind of, parenthetical implication for us is that that we have to invite lost people into that family. We have to invite lost people. Hey, hey, look what we have. By God's grace. Be a part of this. So as we conclude, creation, right? God creates man to live under his righteous rule. Man f- falls desiring the righteous rule of God. He wants to be the determining person in right and wrong and redemption what happens jesus comes and lives perfectly the righteousness of god now don't miss this as we tie this together jesus envies no one's righteousness right he has no hatred in his heart for his brothers he lives this out perfectly now how does redemption happen in our lives how are we to live with a sacrificial love for our brothers how are we to do what john's requiring of us here it is only upon receiving the righteousness of god now how does us receiving the righteousness of god through the redeeming work of jesus how does that impact the potential for hatred think about this if we have christ's righteousness then how could we ever be envious of the righteousness of a brother that leads to hatred, that leads to murder? If we have Christ's righteousness, and my brother has Christ's righteousness, how could we be envious of his righteousness? We both have the same righteousness, right? He's got Jesus' righteousness, I've got Jesus' righteousness. Not to little measures, but the fullness of Christ's righteousness. We have that, he has that. How could I be envious if we have the same thing? If I have a $100 bill, he has a $100 bill. How can I be envious of his $100 bill? I have a $100 bill too. It's the same thing. So if I have Christ's righteousness and he has Christ's righteousness, I can't be envious of his righteousness. So what are we doing when we're envying our brother's righteousness? What are we comparing his righteousness to? Our righteousness. And what happens in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ? Our righteousness is gone. We have his righteousness. Why would we ever look for righteousness and the satisfaction and blessing that comes from that righteousness anywhere else? Why, do we have, why would we look to our brother and, and, and think upon his righteousness if he has the righteousness of Jesus? Like in an envious type way. Why would we do that? Instead, we rest in Jesus' righteousness and we have all we need in Jesus. Now let's think about it. That's the how does the redeeming work of Jesus kind of curtail and and cut off the potential for hatred? It's because we have his righteousness. Now because we have Christ's righteousness, what else do we have? We have everything we need in Jesus both for this life and for the life to come. That redeeming work of Jesus and having everything we need in him, this in turn frees us to give ourselves to our brothers to sacrifice and give ourselves because if all we need is in Jesus and he has everything then what we then what do we lose when we give ourselves to our brother we lose nothing if we have everything we need in Jesus then when we give of ourselves to our brothers we lose nothing so the redeeming work of Christ not only Cuts off the potential for hatred and murder because we're not longer comparing our substandard righteousness, but we're comparing the righteousness of Jesus that I have, that He has too. That curtails it, but not only that, but because of everything we have in Jesus when we give of ourselves sacrificially. Why was Jesus able to go to the cross? Everything He needed was in God. Everything. Everything. How are we able to give everything? To our brothers, because everything we have is in Jesus. And guys, he is plentiful, and he is giving of everything. John Stott said this, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. But love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ, not Cain. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. So, I want to pray for us, and we will sing uh, in just a few moments. Father, I pray that your saints are edified this morning. Father, we walk away knowing that our righteousness is in your Son, Jesus, who paid the price for our sin. Father, I pray that we can be a community that is exemplary of your love for us. And Father, that we would understand that if we're lacking in community, it's not we just need to do things harder. No, it's we need, we need to understand your righteousness better and repent for our misunderstanding and, And Father, we need to understand your sacrifice better and repent for making minimal or making light of that sacrifice. And Father, as we understand the giving and the richness of your giving to us, it's in that that we might begin to live as a community that you've called us to live. And Father, I also pray that we would understand the vast wealth that you have. And that in that vast wealth, if we are loving our brothers and sisters through Christ, that we have everything to give and nothing to lose. What a deal. What a deal this, that you've called us to. Or you're enabling, empowering, equipping, and resourcing us with everything we need to do to do what John has called us to here. So, Father, help us to keep that in mind. Father, as we sin and we live selfishly, help us to repent of that and help us to live in the graciousness of your gospel. And, uh, Father, as we sing, Father, let us celebrate the giving of your Son, Jesus, to us. Let's not leave here depressed or guilt-ridden, but leave here with the sweetness of freedom, to live out these words that John's called us to because of the blood of your Son. And uh, Father, we'll give you praise as, uh, as you bring glory to yourself through our lives this week. And In your Son's name we pray. Amen.